because of today, which is Valentine's Day, which again, the implication is much more secular than it is spiritual. But we're turning that around and our emphasis is on the spiritual. When the spiritual component part that we recognize is an expression of our heart towards someone, but now directed towards the someone who really deserves all of our heart, all of our love, then things get worked out in the other, which is essential. The human component part of who we are, how we're to get along, how we're to appreciate and enjoy a season of love on earth. It's a short season, by the way. It has nothing to compare to what eternity will hold for us. So at times even it begs that where misery may be a theme that some of us can say, that's my love story. It's a short story. It really is. It's a very small narrative. It has nothing to do with the bigger work of God ultimately for joy that can't even compare. But it is important at the same time to not find ourselves simply waiting it out, holding on for what appears to be nothing. We want to hold on to God who has given us everything. So what we do is we review the scriptures that are familiar to us, but because it is a living and active book, meaning it doesn't change on the whims of people and their thoughts because of culture, because of compromise, it means it's a living and active word that touches us with frequency and accuracy at any point, any time we desire to put our eyes into it. You can trust it. We don't necessarily say we can trust many institutions, in particular some that have a catchphrase called throwing the book at you. <laughs> we should be able to. And it's right though that we have at times ourselves challenged in terms of even what we perhaps have gotten away with. But bringing us back to this theme, which is the heart of love, we're gonna talk about God. Because when we talk about God, and we talk about the heart of love, the connection there is what many of us need to say. That's where I missed it. My connection with love has been absent of the heart of love. And as a result of that, I have found myself discouraged about love. I have found myself amiss in my pursuit of love. One of the things that at times I refer to are those particular icons of music, the prophets of rock and roll, the ones that motivated and moved generations. And you've heard it before. Most of you are obviously in the idea of music kind of in my generation, at least as far as how many songs you probably recall. But I just thought of these guys again with regard to this theme about the heart of love. And they're still around. I don't know how much longer they could be around. You probably know where I'm going with this, but I can't get no. You could probably finish that off. Satisfaction. It's from the Rolling Stones. But one day, there's going to be a stone that will not roll. It's gonna be a headstone. 
And it's going to mark a life that was spent in frivolity and vanity. I have nothing to note of whether any of them have accepted the Lord, but their songs certainly do not speak of that. And I do believe that God, in his grace, even preserves such as we would say, who would deserve such grace? Well, when we look at what sin does and what it represents and who God declares himself to be concerning what his remedy is to those whom he loves, which is everyone whom he has created, I think they stand kind of like an emblem of grace. The angels are just going, I don't get this. These guys have said nothing about you. And the angels marvel at the grace of God. It's interesting. I thought that that song would be their number one hit, but it wasn't. About 20 years later from I Can't Get No Satisfaction, <laughs> it surprised me. That's why I'm laughing. They penned another song. <laughs> 20 years later, so they ain't getting any prettier. And that was probably now 20 years ago. Start me up. <laughs> they came to the conclusion that they weren't getting satisfied, so start me up. The problem is they didn't ask the right person to start them up. So their engines never really got going. They are still flattening out on the freeway of the expenditures of carnality. I don't have anything more to share with you concerning the rolling stones, except if they do not turn to the Lord who loves them, then they will not, they will not be doing any jumping jack flashes. They won't be able to. That was the last pun. So it's not about the rolling stones. It's not about Mick Jagger and the others that have been a part of that work. But we do have to say, my goodness, maybe they represent in that illustration what I have also known of myself in my own life illustrations. I haven't been satisfied in love. I've tried to do everything to jumpstart myself and now I can't even do a simple jumping jack because of my delay. So where do we go to in order to find encouragement in the word. I love this part because it's so succinct and it's found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Because the Rolling Stones need to know that Jesus himself said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus made that declaration to Nicodemus who thought he had it all figured out. But the questions still were deeply embedded in his heart and still confusion reigned in his mind. One of the teachers of Israel. So John being what the scriptures tell us, a beloved disciple, apostle, he had the heartbeat of the Lord. So in 1 John chapter 4, when we look at verse 7, John emphasizes this, that we are to love one another. The problem with that is 
how is the right way to love one another if we have had indeed so many sorrowful errors in trying to be loved or to love at all. So it advances to say, for love is of God. We have to recognize that love is of God. It's not simply something that is an expression from man, from woman, towards one another, or even in family, again, along with others that are related to us or neighbors that are besides us. John is saying definitively that the headwaters of love begin with the central figure of our faith. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. That's made clear in Ephesians that Paul pens. Chapter 5 is definitive on that. We're the body. So in a Valentine season, for those who feel perhaps seasoned, it's getting old, I'm getting dry, I've cried my rivers, I'm singing a song sung blue, it may be that what the Lord would say is then renew. Take where you're at and say, this is now where I can start. And so when John speaks of this, he's telling us all to go back to the central author, figure, person of our faith if we want to get love right. See, God hasn't erred in love. We have. <laughs> Even as I erred trying to put the bottle of water on a stand that was over here, missed the stand completely. Those are operations which I should have handled quite well. Did you see that? No stand. I try to hit the stand, it flies off. And that can actually show you what so easily happens in not only our relationship with God, we just miss, oops, okay, oops. And then we get discouraged. And it can happen too in our relationships with one another. So I'm just anchoring ourselves in this text. And maybe it's something that we actually need to take a little bit of heaviness off of ourselves and laugh at our clumsiness. We can all be so clumsy in loving God. We can be way harder on ourselves than he is. And we can also say, unfortunately, there's nothing I can do about it. As the apostle continues to pen here, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Born of God and knows God because of the key statement saying that if we are to love one another, love is of God. When we understand that love is of God, not from simply the agencies of men or perhaps the eyes that men set upon the loves of their lives or the eyes that women set upon the loves of their lives, it's God. It leads us to this next important statement in verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The key statement there is God is love. When we understand that God is love, when we understand that love is of God, we have two key central presentations of putting our life in order once again, that's what we want to do. We want to put our life back in order. 
And so when we look at that, it's a way to touch our hearts again. If we have a God that died for us, then isn't it a fair expectation that he would desire us to live for him? If he's died for us, it seems reasonable that his expectation is that we would live for him. But we no longer live in the flesh, we live in the spirit. That's the mystery of the church. How do you guys get through what it is that's being thrown at you or the crises that, you know, I've seen you come through or still are in the midst of? How do you do it? And we ought to be able to have a ready answer. The love of God. I love God. God is love. Therefore, I know that I will prevail. I will prevail in a time of travail. Because God is love, and love is of God. So I focus on that. So is that all there is to it? Well, God has designed this book really to have just a beautiful unfolding of not only the history and, and, and practical methodology, but really also some points that we can identify with in what are the doctrinal emphases, or the, what God would say through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the notes, the bullet points of love. And it's actually autobiographical. If you didn't know that, when you read 1 Corinthians 13 and love is being defined, it's actually very biographical or autobiographical. God penning his thoughts concerning defining love in that particular text of scripture. So flip over there, if you would, 1 Corinthians 13. So Acts and Romans, and then 1 Corinthians is going to jump out at you very shortly. The greatest gift is defined in this, and the manifestations of this gift, or if you would, the revelation of God concerning love is brought to our attention. And that is this, love. Verse four, suffers long. It's long suffering. Chapter 13, verse four, tells us something about the nature and person of God. He suffers long. Now, it's not like the type of suffering that we would find ourselves groaning over if we stepped on a thorn. Actually, that can be easily resolved by the removal of the thorn and a bandage and perhaps some type of antiseptic, analgesic on it. That can be remedied. God's willing to have a grieving heart that suffers in the process of waiting to be gracious towards us. It's not that he's not being gracious. It's that his grace has been poured out for us by the love of God, by his love personally towards each of us, and he's waiting for that to be received. It suffers long. The wait can be so difficult. And the impatience that we've learned in our culture today propels us not to appreciate the misery, but to get out of it. Get into something. Change my circumstance. 
enter into a relationship. But the problem remains is that if God is not the central person of your heart and the love of your life, you will not have any more success with someone that you believe you can love if you cannot love God. That's the deal. God would say, as we just looked at, that if you hate your fellow human being, then you cannot have the Spirit of God who loves you in you. You're lying. Reciprocating that, if you do not love God, you cannot possibly love your fellow man. You cannot possibly love your spouse because God's love is willing and, in fact, is central in the attribute of suffering long. It's a long suffering sometimes. And none of us like to suffer. We want to get the thorn out. We want the analgesic on. We want to skip with joy over the mountains and dales and along the riversides. And it's seemingly that we're caught in this bog. But it continues on, and I think that this bears importance right now. It suffers long. In other words, a word that may be very important for you too is patience. Be patient in love. Be patient with love. Be patient loving someone. At the same time, that being exercised towards an individual cannot be taken for granted by the recipient of long-suffering and patience. There's a time's up in God's plan for those who ultimately reject him. And therefore, the difficulty very often in marriages is the time's up happens because response has been unfortunately delayed. And what happens to the heart? It gets dry. It shrivels. What does the enemy do? Takes advantage of taking over the heart where once the residency of God was. Everybody's vulnerable to it. I appreciated Rob's teaching on Friday from Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsteth, come ye by the waters. Buy without cost to you. It was a fascinating teaching and he presented because it was a work of a devotion that he was having with the Lord. The Lord wants us to drink of him and to dine of him and to be filled without any cost to us. But the problem is many don't heed that thirst. Many don't heed the hunger. We satisfy the hunger with other things. We quench the thirst with other stuff. Eventually, it leads to nothing that replenishes the spirit, and you're left simply dehydrated and starved for what God was willing to give you without cost from the beginning. The heart of love must be linked to the heart of God who loves you more than you can possibly love anybody. It's important to realize also God has built a frustration in love. When you think that marriage will handle everything, satisfy all that you've ever dreamed of, you will find yourself sorely disappointed because it can't. It has built into it, if you would, a parameter in which it cannot become your God. Your spouse cannot become your God and you cannot become a God to your spouse, but you can be godly in love towards one another. 
And that's important. Whenever we start to worship the person who is linked with us in a partnership, a companionship, we will find ourselves greatly disappointed. God doesn't want that. So again, sometimes in the area of the long-suffering, it's because you've suffered unnecessarily and you haven't projected in your time of perhaps even personal dysfunction to God, Lord, this is my predicament. This is where I'm at. There seems to be a wall between us. And God would say, is there a wall between us? Rich, is there a wall between us? If there's a wall between you, I want to know, is there a wall between us? Oh, of course, you know where I'm going with this. Some Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall. I didn't even like it because it spoke against teachers and I was a teacher. But these guys that write, if you would, prophetic utterance to the carnal mind, they're going to have to address these issues. Mick, why weren't you satisfied? Pink Floyd, forget the guy's name. Why did you put another brick in the wall? You did it. I didn't. I tore down the dividing wall. You're wondering, will you ever get through 1 Corinthians 13? Not at this rate. But maybe this is the camping point. However, as it does continue, love does not envy. So I have to be one that is saying that in my marriage or in understanding God, I do not have my eyes on something else that is not mine. In other words, I have to have a contentment in what God has given to me, and I must not be striving in terms of what perhaps is not at my disposal at the time. I'm not to look at something and say, well, that's what I really need, that's what I really want, that's who I really am. God never questions himself about anything that he's created and anything that he's purposed, he's fully content, fully self-sufficient. To that degree, that is what love requires, a contentment and the source of love for the people that God is distributing his love through us towards. And it requires that. We battle with envy. Sometimes give a child, two ch children at the same time, a gift one larger than the other, and you'll immediately see very likely the disposition of the one getting the smaller gift, his eyes, her eyes, towards the one that got the bigger gift. There would be envy. It would immediately be invoked, unless it's a supernatural, spirit-filled, young little kid that says, oh, I love small things. <laughs> but most of us say, I want to have a big thing. And that's a test really for all of us. I want to have a bigger marriage, a better marriage, a better place in my marriage. I want to have a better marriage partner. Man, think if God thought that about you. I want to have a better disciple. I started out with you and you left me. At 16, you just left me. God gets left all the time. Don't envy. Pursuing this 
love is not to parade itself. It's not puffed up. This means having an arrogancy. I qualify arrogancy as pride with feet that run towards disaster and run away from the consequence of disaster. It takes no responsibility. It doesn't behave rudely, so there's a decorum with love. There was several generations, my grandmother and my grandfather, my mom and dad too, but decorum concerning love has kind of become passe. It's become so casual. And the formality of it, I think, really needs to be under the challenge of both men and women in ways that are important. I'm reminded of that. Got the key to the van, doors. And there's probably going to be one now in which the door opens and you don't even have to open it for your spouse. But I remember my grandfather and my dad, and before they got in the driver's seat, they opened the door for their spouse, my mom, my grandmother. Do you ever remember that? Have you ever seen that happen? Yeah, but it's kind of like, how are you going to get to McDonald's if you're spending all your time getting to the other door? You know? A decorum that is necessary, a respect that is shown, an honorable sacrifice to not be in such a hurry that you can't help the one that you're linked with. I would help my mom in and out, and so would Christy, of my our vans. We would have to really, she couldn't just hop in it. We would, we would have to actually help her up and give her a boost on her twofer to get in the seat and belt it in. Sometimes we'd have to get creative and put a stool out. We exercised a decorum and a respect for where she was at as a matron. But the same thing, I believe, and I'm just, you know, it's not... It's not shaming any one of us as men. I'm saying that I think that that is an important statement to make. Does not seek its own. This is referring to selflessness as opposed to selfishness. So we know when selfishness is exercised. And it's usually demonstrated when we go to the refrigerator first and find what it is we want. <laughs> hide it behind our back as we're sneaking around our house. It is not provoked and it does not think evil. And this is one of probably the most important camping points right now to pitch your tent on. It cannot be provoked. It's not easily. There can be provocation, but it's not going to change the disposition. It's going to be arrested by the person that has been offended they put that offense under arrest, not the person that offended. And it's a discipline. And it requires the mouth to be silenced. It requires the mind to be steeled. It requires the heart not to burst or to shrink. It is an exercise in which divine control needs to have its place. We have to say, God, help me. That one hurt. Help me. Jesus would be the model of that, of taking the insults and the innuendos, the disrespect, 
and not judging the person for it. It takes a lot of work, both for husbands and wives in this theme of love. Jesus was the master, but he was treated as a slave. And he allowed that to be, for his model was, I did not come to be served, but to serve. That's a great disposition to have in marriages, especially when love in these days needs to be ever more really understood, articulated by our behavior towards one another. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, verse 7 says, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. We know that relationships can fail. This is where the autobiography comes in. God doesn't fail. Even when relationships do fail, God has not failed, never will fail. And the reason that we have to come back to this is many people have given up on God in relational failures. And that's not fair to God. It is not what he deserves. Perhaps the failure that you went through was not fair to that person or how they indeed reciprocated and were not fair to you. But God's not liable for that. That's owned by the individuals in which maybe for a season, one or the other or both, were not solely locked on to the Lord. It's interesting because the word agape that we're familiar with in the Greek is the love that God has for us. And it is too deep to plumb and it's too wide to actually ever cover its unending. There's another implication of it, probably more secularly based, but it means a mouth wide open. God doesn't have a closed mouth concerning love. It's a mouth wide open. It's a wide open mouth that projects his love upon everyone who has a shut mouth that's pursed out of disappointment and frustration. The love of God demonstrated in agape means his mouth, the gospel, the word of truth, how he has defined his institutions is wide open. All we have to do is listen and zip ours. We listen to God. We don't try to change who he is. We ask God, change who I am, which is one of the merits and marvels of a church because we go, how did we get here? And most of us will say, it's what I do. It's who I am, the Spirit of God. And most of us can say, is there any reason that you'd never come back again? And some of us could say, oh, I thought about it, and at times I have been distant from it. But honestly, every time that happens, something other than what I want to happen happens with greater frequency. I need to be here. I need to be with my people. I need to be in the love of God. Incidences and circumstances, situations, crises will pull people away. Christy's been pulled away from this body for almost three months now. Why? Because the love of God constrains her. 
in a place that if she could choose, she wouldn't desire to be at, at least for the purpose of why she's there. But they're constrained. Guess what? They get to see us here. But love has with it great sacrifice for a need that God says that's where the need is. So that's where she's at. We're here because our need constrains us to be here right now presently. All we have to do is say, Lord, you're meeting my need. I needed to come through that door. You're meeting my need. Thank you for loving me. 1 Corinthians 13 here, if you study it, is autobiographical. God is telling you what's required to be truly a lover of people whom he loves. But it also gives you a clue. How can I love like God loves? I'm trying to love people, but how can I love like God loves? And so much of it seems like I'm going to get the short end of the stick. Right. Do you realize that God gets the short end of the stick, the measuring rod? We're always under measuring God's vastness, His grace. We're always giving God, at times and intentionally, the short end of our stick. We're measuring Him wrong. And so what God tells us in this word is how to measure up. It's a lovely scripture, but it also has a great responsibility to it. And therefore, one of the great themes that is taught in the Bible is grace. Because love does not operate apart from grace. And grace means that an advantage by God will be given to somebody else for the advantage that you've received from God. There's mercy and grace, but grace is the means by which his riches are poured out to the infinitely ill-deserving and their husbands and their wives. We're either one or the other if we're married, right? we can be the recipients and we can also be the villains of infinitely ill-deserving expectation of God's grace, how we've been towards him or how we've been towards the other. And when we say to ourselves, hmm, if God were suspending his mercy towards me, because I'm a violator of his grace. What in the world does that mean if I suspend my grace towards somebody who needs mercy? It doesn't exist apart or separate from grace. Mercy just lets you know that what his grace has overwhelmingly flooded your life with, judgment has passed. And it's a marvelous marriage. You want to talk about a marriage grace and mercy. That's a beautiful illustration. The agape love of God, its mouth is wide open in declaring his grace and his love and his mercy. We need to learn how to express with a wide open mouth the depths 
that cannot be plumbed, the horizontal circumference that never ends of God's love. We've got to do it. I tend to be very stoic. Being single for a long time, I learned silence is golden. But silence doesn't satisfy. And silence has a requirement to it too. It must break out. And so at times what we found ourselves to be is saturated with communication in which we have nothing more to say. We've been receptive to everything that's come in to the in basket and we can't possibly contribute to another person's life and what they need to hear. That is one of the things you're seeing. We hide actually from people. And we do so to protect ourselves because we are just saturated. It's oozing from us. Stuff that we hear about ourselves, stuff that we perceive from others towards us, the news that hits us, everything problematic, everything, if you would, systemic, everything that points towards the negative as opposed to the positive, we are just sponges. The enemy's using it to where then what we want to be is I am a rock, I am an island, no one touches me. And I'll touch no one. It's a predicament. That's a great song. Simon and Garfunkel, probably about 1964 or five. They had amazing songs. The problem though with that one is that it was a philosophy that many bought into in that generation, tune out get high, let go, and exercise love just freelance, no commitments, tear up the papers, shack up and move on. Why? Because I'm a rock. I'm an island. No one touches me. I'm going to touch no one. But if it's convenient, I'll make exceptions, as long as the exceptions don't tie me down. Great illustration in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's take it back to Genesis chapter 2 for a closing. As in 1 John 4, 7, and 8, God declaring himself to be the author of love and that God himself is the expression of love, its origin as well is found here. And he does that by emphasizing that in all creation that he pronounced was good. He caps it off with one, a Sabbath, and two, his creating man and woman. And the reason that's beautiful is because we're here because of the agency of love through the institution of marriage that God pronounced as of him. We're a marvelous work. God would challenge us that in Romans chapter 1, you look outside, study the stars, marvel at the seas, the mountains, the trees, the flowers, the bees, all of those things marvel. They declare and speak of me. But there's no one, in my opinion, that if they don't get that one right, could not possibly marvel at how God could have the dynamics, the skillful and precise biodynamics of bringing two unique individuals together 
that have a draw towards one another, complex in what each of them represent, and fit them to be propagators of life. He's given that authority to be propagators of life, to create families that move in the lineage of faith. If that is not enough to convince a man and woman of a great creator, they're going to have a really hard time being convinced by anything. So what has Satan done? Satan has moved to cause there to be a questioning of the institution of marriage. Or if you would, the biology of both man and woman. There's no question about it. You pull a DNA off of bones in a grave and scientists will be able to tell you that's a man, that's a woman. That's a young boy, that's a young girl. Chromosomes don't lie. Genetics have been imprinted. So why we have confusion only tells me that we have people that don't seek truth and don't embrace it. Why do we go here, though? Here's why I wanted to come back to this. God identifies his nature concerning love by this beautiful, complex assignment of two beings that are going to work spiritually and dynamically and industrially together. They have been given the whole world and the charge of managing it. What we do find is they had difficulties, unfortunately, managing themselves to be under the management of God. And that predicament presents itself in chapter 3, which we won't get into. What I wanted to emphasize is simply this in verse 26. What about love, Rich? Well, the heart of love is that you love God. What about love, Rich? The heart of God is that you love someone. Rich, whom do I love? Whom God has fitted you for, likened you to. And it's not a gorilla, and it's not a horse, and it's not another of your gender. There is a man and a woman that are to be paired with a one different and unique being created in the similitude of God, completely wired way differently than you. Do you realize, guys, that men and women are wired very differently, and that's a fact? It's a, it's a total fact. That's why our entire life produces frustration if we do not come to God and say, how did you wire that one? Same way I wired you very uniquely. And what you may have trouble understanding in your wife or what she may have under trouble understanding in you as a husband, I have complete sovereignty over. I can change the short circuits. I can show you the connections. And I can also leave much of it a mystery that will compel you to seek me industrially, devotionally, if you want to live in peace if you want to have love as I've afforded it. And it's a marvelous, it really is marvelous. I spent a lot of time alone, up to 38 years. I have no problem telling young men and women, 
you'll see that if you make it to 38 and you get married, you'll go, man, it seemed like just a short time. But I have no problem telling those that indeed in younger and probably would be, would be the norm, if the Lord's brought somebody into your life, great. But he's the one that had to bring him into your life. And it has to be by consensus agreement, not by taking hostage, not by sweating it out. Though there is a sweat in marriage, we are not to be sweating out the plan of God regarding relationships that are intended to be about pointing to him. And so in that, he has defined, we're going to make man in our image, our likeness, to let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. So, image linked to the word imagine, we need to see our spouses as in the image of God. What would you say to God if he presented himself to you as your spouse? How would you be? Have you ever had those oops moments? God wants us to see our spouse in the image of himself. And I know that altogether differently, I would behave, wouldn't you, if Jesus was right in front of you, seemingly differently, wouldn't you? I mean, I would probably, I, military bearing, I'd probably stand and try to salute him. I'd probably get it wrong, because I wasn't a Marine. There'd be many things that I'd be actually clumsily trying to do, try to probably get him water, wouldn't have any need of it. But when I think about that in the image of God, we were created, it just, it dials me back to the seriousness of having the responsibility of loving someone and to treat them as in the image of God. So perhaps for us today, we can say, that's the way I'm going to treat my wife. That's the way I'm going to treat my husband in the image of God according to what Ephesians says is the right way to evaluate their treatment. What difference could it make? How will you know if we don't try? Wouldn't it be wonderful and surprising if all of a sudden the very thing that we've been striving for is solved by looking at our mate in the image of God, as the image of God? They're not our gods, but what if we looked at them as what God says he made each one of us in his image. Therefore, treat your spouse as in the image of God. And what would you do for them? What would you not say to them? What would you say to them? What would you surrender to them? What would you capture and keep for them? What would you release and say goodbye to for them? Just a thought. Moving to a critical last verse in 21 of chapter 2 is where I'm going. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And so in this is some real practical understanding. Men are very much assigned to be industrialists and to work very hard. God had given Adam an assignment and literally said, I'm going to have to stop you right now from going any further. You've done well, but now I'm going to do something remarkable. I'm going to make you even better, essentially is what's being said. It's not good that you're alone, is what God would say in the verse prior to this 18. It's not good that you're alone, but you've done some good work, Adam. I'm going to put you to rest. Don't be surprised, men. If God says, you need to take a rest, you need to chill out, you've done good, but it's not good that you're alone simply on the mission of doing good, of being an industrialist, a provider. I've got something that uniquely I'm going to bring to you. But the question in this too that I would ask even the sisters is, when God endeavors to bring you to your husband who as an industrialist is working very hard and doesn't even know how to stop, doesn't even know why he should stop, are you pulling away from God's hand as he's bringing you to your husband? It's an important question. It's not simply one-sided because I guarantee you, the woman who is at home or even maybe working is equally as industrial. <laughs> I'm laughing at my room. It does not look like when Christy's there. It's not good that I'm alone. I can guarantee you there's no pizza boxes in there, but it's probably only because I've been sly and I've hidden them. <laughs> but what I'm saying in the closing right now is this is very rich. God took from his side, putting him to rest, a component part of his body. By the way, we're not quibbling over, okay, so what rib was it? Was it the first or fourth? Which side was it on? It doesn't matter. God didn't choose to make that a detail. It says that from his side he took a rib, fashioned the woman from it. And if you want a really beautiful explanation, Matthew Henry wrote one in Genesis, a commentary on that. Really beautiful one. You've probably heard it before. But what I'm saying is this. I believe that the reason that that was the major component part is that the rib cage protects the heart. And that's the theme of today. God chose to take from Adam one of the strongest and actually amazing bones of the body, the rib cage. Do you know a lot of guys, they break their ribs. They say, what did you do? I couldn't do anything about it. I just had to rest and let it heal. Did it hurt? Oh man, did it hurt. As it's mending, it has the ability to resume a flexibility and actually strengthen at the point of the break. And so when you look at this, God's really saying that from this man, in the order that I have created them, Male and female, in the image of God, they are. I've given him one of the I've given her one of my best parts of him. That's why men love prime rib. I'm confident it's a God thing. We love prime rib. Hamburger will take it. Hot dogs will eat it. But when you talk about prime rib, the Lord's speaking to us, woman. 
Today, if you're a wise woman, you'll make prime rib happen to them. And if not for dinner, then you will plan on a prime rib evening later. And it's important to understand this language that, that God is really saying, I've given you from this man a protection for your heart. And then I'm closing on this. Heart attacks are, I believe, still the number one killer of men. And so I say this, as God has given the rib to the woman for the protection of her heart, Women understand that's a huge responsibility. And we probably would say we fail miserably at it with great frequency. But it doesn't change what God said concerning the picture. And therefore, be careful as your heart has been symbolically in the scriptures designed to be protected by the man. See to it that you do not attack his heart. Heart attacks are rampant. Esteem him as one in Ephesians that is worthy of respect. Even though it may be something you would say, <laughs> not my guy, you let that be an issue between God and your husband. And in the same context with the men, you allow your wife to be the personification of his bride and it'll change the way perhaps little by little, how you deal with one another. Because remember, the Lord is choosing to write in our lives with regard to love how we ought to do it and do it right. And that there's no confusion in people seeing God in true light. How did those two get along? They love God. And God is love. Love is of God. God is love. He's the love of their life. As a result of he being the love of their life, they have a love in their life for one another that transposes into everybody else's life. It challenges them on how to live better as husbands and wives. No marriage is perfect, but every marriage is perfecting. And we need to know that. No marriage is perfect. Only one future tense, the church and Jesus. But can you imagine if he gave up on us? He's going to present us without spot or wrinkle to his father. That's amazing.